Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, thought leaders, practitioners, and even an accidental behavioral scientist every now and then. So whether you're a first-timer or a seasoned vet with behavioral grooves, we wish you a warm welcome. And let's go a little deeper on that welcome, Tim. I want to do some shout-outs to let listeners know that we are grateful for their support by just listening to each and every episode. Some of our regular listeners hail from the United States, Canada, the UK, Australia, Germany, Denmark, India, the Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, Ireland, Brazil, Thailand. Well, I think you get it. The the list goes on for quite a while. But the point is this. You listen from all over the world, and we are extremely grateful for that. Yeah, we are. You know, we know that you as our listeners are in one of more than 120 countries around the world and on every continent except Antarctica, of course. Come on, Antarctica. Let's get going. (laughs) All right. Now, there's another group of listeners we want to acknowledge. We have supporters who leave ratings and reviews. We have 57 of our listeners who have left us a rating by just clicking on the five stars at the bottom of the app. And I have to say that leaving a rating is so easy that you could actually do it right now. And there are listeners who have left us some wonderful reviews as well. Yeah, and 24 of you have taken the time to leave us a review. People with iconic monikers like NYC Banker and Dr. Sociology and Steely Chili. And one of my personal favorites was Breeny Ahern. Mm, <laughs> wonder who that is. <laughs> my favorite handle is These Are My People. Oh, yeah. And we think of all of you as our people as well. And so thank you. Thank you for leaving a review. Well, there's also a category of supporters who have taken time to go uh, a little bit further with some of their hard-earned pay to support our Patreon site. And there are just 10 of those patrons who are actually you know, doing a little bit more in the form of like a single cup of coffee each month to help keep the wheels on Behavior Grooves Global Headquarters. Yeah, they're, they're not sending us a cup of coffee every month because you don't <laughs> like coffee. That's but right, I don't even the drink equivalent it. of just a cup of coffee and really helping support us in our mission of getting behavioral science out into the world. And beyond that, beyond that, we have a new long-term sponsors or sponsor, actually, since there's just one of them. Uh, We'll be telling you more about that sponsor soon. But that long-term sponsor is going to allow us to hire in a part-time intern to make this show even better. So let us know if you're interested or know anybody that is in becoming an intern with Behavioral Grooves. We're looking for one soon. Absolutely. If you want a super easy interview, talk to me. If you want a super hard interview, talk to Kurt. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tim. So let's turn to our guest for this episode. Okay. You got it, Kurt. Our guest for this episode is Channing Jang. He's the head of the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics based in Nairobi, Kenya. They have offices throughout Africa where they believe in a world where evidence-based and context-specific solutions can be implemented to address our world's most complex problems. Right. And we were excited to speak with Channing after a referral from Allison Zelkowitz, who is the director of the Behavioral Insights team for Save the Children. And it's a little out of order since we're actually not even going to record our session with Allison for a couple of months, but that's okay. We're we're here talking with Channing now, and 
man, did we have a great conversation with him. God, we certainly did, Kurt. We discussed solving poverty where it is most prevalent, like in Africa. And we talked about the relationship between stress levels, decision-making, and being impoverished. We asked questions about what is rational and what isn't? And we talked about the different ways that academics look at problems compared to the way practitioners look at problems. But most importantly, Tim, we talked about context and how context matters. <laughs> yes. Here's a snippet from what Channing had to say about context. You want to start thinking about like, when we're applying things into a development context, into a different context, it isn't enough to just take these three things, these papers that worked, you know, in Cambridge and say, okay, they're going to work here, right? You need to contextualize them. You need to think hard about them. And it's so great that Channing was willing to say that contextualizing things is really, really hard. So true that it is really hard. But what isn't hard is listening to Channing talk about it. In fact, you might even find your groove by listening to what he has to say. Ooh. Oh, okay. So with that, we invite you to sit back with a fluted glass of sparkling context and listen to our conversation with Channing Jang. Channing Jang, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kurt. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, we're we're ha we're glad to have you, especially late at night in Nairobi. So thank you for staying up a little late to chat with us. <laughs> we're gonna get started with a speed round. Kurt, you wanna you wanna go first? Sure. So, quick answers, you know, to to these questions. All right. Prefer coffee or tea? Oh, coffee, a hundred percent. I'm I'm from Hawaii, uh, and we have ah. some of the best coffee in the world. So. Ah, <laughs> wow. Let that context shine yeah. through. Okay. Um, would you prefer to travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Definitely no itinerary. Um, you kind of get to explore, right? Like the best trip I ever had was I went with my wife to Italy, just no plan, booked an Airbnb in the town that we ended up at. And, you know, you just, you get the chance to see that context and you stop when you want to stop, you go when you want to go. That's, that's the ideal. Great. I love that. That That is a, a man after my own heart right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Um, would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite researcher or your favorite musician? Ooh, that's a hard one. <laughs> mm, maybe favorite researcher. I might have more to say. I, I'm kind of like a voyeuristic, <laughs> like I kind of have a weird taste in music. So maybe, you know, I'd be like... You're cool. And All right. So like, if you if you if you had to pick a, a musician to have dinner with, who would that be? Uh yeah. I mean, this is the same, right? This is the same problem. I would want to meet someone that I really like the music of, and I would have no idea what to talk about, right? So I'd, <laughs> I'd say, <laughs> I'd say, hey, okay. Kevin Parker, what what are you doing? How do you make such cool music? Yeah. Okay, that's it. All right. <laughs> End of discussion. Is End that of discussion. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Okay. And, and from a researcher, is there anybody that, that you would go, all right, hey, this is a person I would love to just sit down with dinner and have a conversation with? 
Yeah, I mean, one good thing about Busar, I'm pretty lucky. A lot of good researchers come through, right? Like, I've always yeah. wanted to to meet with Michael, and you know, we've we've got to hang out with him a little bit. Uh, luckily, before he got famous and stopped returning my emails, um, Dan Ariel <laughs> is another big one that you know, uh, you know, that's it's it's always great. I went to a I went to a wedding with Dan, and we bought uh, secondhand bow ties to go to a Kenyan wedding and just kind of hung out for for an hour. So, <laughs> luckily, I've, nice. I've kind of gotten I've kind of gotten my my researcher bucket list. Uh, <laughs> done, now that is. Story we might want to talk about <laughs> going to a wedding with Dan. Yeah, yeah that yeah, that yeah. is something we we might have to talk about. Okay, well let's 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 wrap up the speed round with this question: um, Which is better to engage people in starting a savings account? Is it better to send them a weekly text message or to give them a golden colored coin for each each numbers of the week of the trial? Yeah, it's it's surprising how much that gold coin works, you know. <laughs> Try there's something with that disfluency holding that coin and and you'd be shocked. Uh you'd be shocked. Uh I was I was pleasantly surprised with with how heavy that coin was and so it it, it works. I I'm 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 I, I couldn't believe it either. <laughs> well, well, we are referring to a, a study that you did with Dan, um, and and it was looking at this, right? Looking at the yep. influence of of having a, a text message or getting a gold coin on savings rate. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so this was an interesting project early on, early days, Busara, and you can tell, like, I, you know, when we say I did this with Dan, this is more like this was Dan's idea that we kind of helped bring to life, uh, <laughs> as with many things. Um, but you know, they had this question, right? They they were working with this this pension provider, pretty low, pretty low savings uh, rates overall, um, and they kind of had this classic, you know, they started with a classic economist question: is like. You know, what are the financial, how do you calibrate these financial incentives? And then what behavioral things can we layer on so that um, to, to see like what's to, to measure whether it's a behavioral issue or if it's a financial issue. So they did kind of lots of different treatment groups. I think there ended up at 15 different treatment groups because it was right. all crossed. But they had a coin, right, which is a, kind of about salience and being able to hold something. They had text messages, uh, just reminders. That was the control. They had text messages framed from your kid. So it was like, we asked this people, who's, what's your, you know, what's your kid's name? And then we would send them a message that said, mommy, like, please remember to save from your daughter, whatever. Um, and then, and then we had, um, matching. So if you put in money, we would match either 10 or 20%, ridiculous rates of return, right? Um, yeah. But we wanted yeah. to see you know, how that would work. And then the last thing that we did is they would do uh, matching uh, with or without regret. So so do you do you tell people like, you know, you're going to miss out if, if, you, if you don't do this? So all of those things together, all the crosses, it was astounding. The coin just blew everything away. The coin even beat the coin with matching. So somehow the coin itself, you know, it, maybe it's the clarity of just that physical item. Um, but you know, that little thing was much, it was also much more financially sustainable. That coin cost about 25 cents to make maybe, or 10 cents to make, and maybe another 50 cents to deliver. Um, and it, you know, it outperformed by, yeah, at least double the other, the other treatment groups and something like five times the control. So it's, it's incredible what, what these interventions can do sometimes. Wow, how uh, you said that it was weighty. You know, uh, this is one of the things I've always been kind of curious about. Uh, after uh, I think I, I think Kurt, you and I might have actually heard heard Dan talk about this at a conference originally. Yeah. But then even after reading the paper, you said that it was it was substantive it, yeah. and and weighty. This this may sound like a really silly question, but tell us about the coin. 
Yeah, it's 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 a funny coin, right? So it's, it's this little gold coin, and when you look at it, like, in, and it's in the paper, you can see a picture of it. It kind of looks like those little chocolate coins that you get, you know, for Easter. And, yeah. and you're like, well, who the hell would want this, right? Um, but then they take it out of the box, and we got this box shipped in from China to Nairobi on our doorstep in the lab, and it weighed like. 70 pounds it was ridiculous it was like this big and it was just like <laughs> and you take it out and then you're flipping in your hand and it's gold colored it feels like gold and it's heavy it's probably like it's it's probably like a double a double a sacagawea or something it's it's really quite heavy and it makes it feel really valuable and what was really surprising is when we went back for our end line you know so we did some like end line interviews with people Everyone would bring out their gold coin and show us. Like they were really proud of this coin. And there's, I, I don't think it would work with something that was like half the weight or made out of tin. This thing was like really, really heavy and weighty. It had numbers all around and we messaged them every week to say, if you saved, cross the number. If you didn't save, put a tick underneath the number. And yeah, it was like a little calendar advent calendar in a coin and it was, it was pretty incredible <laughs> yeah it's a it's a calling card so i bring it around with me now and i, I pass it out to people um oh you do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's interesting you talk about that that they brought it out right that this yeah. was something that they wanted they, they felt pride in they like showing it off obviously that has to have an impact then on how they're thinking about it and thus how they're thinking about making those deposits and savings and various different aspects of it. It, it, it reminds me of oh, Tim, some of your work that you've done with, with non-cash merchandise, where again, mm -hmm. it's people don't talk about, you know, an incentive where they earn money, but they, they show up that, that television set they get, or, you know, the other yeah. piece that they get granted, this isn't a television set, but yeah. it's still, it feels like it has some of those same qualities mm -hmm. of, you can be proud of this and I can, I can, I can promote it to my neighbors and friends. Yeah. Almost like reconsumption, right? Yeah. Like, like you, you get to, you get to have that experience every time you reach in your pocket and, and you grab the coin. It's like, Oh yeah, this yeah. is working for, this is important to me. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. On some exactly. level. Exactly. And I think that's the, the thing is like, this was a savings product that was completely digital. Right. So in, in Kenya, we have the M-Pesa system. So you have mobile money that you then put into a mobile wallet, right? So there's yeah. nothing physical about that transaction. You never see the dollars. You never look in your piggy bank. There's there's nothing physical about that, right? So I think there's something about flipping that coin over and remembering, okay, there is savings here. This does represent something in the real world. Yeah, yeah that tangible piece. Yeah. Can, all right. So, so with that, can you tell a little bit uh, to our listeners about what Bucera is and and help them understand what it is that you do. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I run an organization called the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. It's it's based in Nairobi and kind of offices in, in around Africa and in India. It was started um, by a, a professor named Johannes Haushofer, who, um, who was really interested. He's like a, you should talk to him. He's a really interesting guy. He, he has a <laughs> neuroscience PhD from Harvard, and then he got an econ PhD from Zurich, and then he did a postdoc back at Harvard, and he won this big NIH grant, basically. And We're not sure if all of you are familiar with the term NIH. The NIH that Channing is referring to is the National Institutes of Health, and that's an organization that works to prevent disease and improve health that's based in the United States. But NIH groups are actually operated in many countries around the world. Okay, back to Channing.
It, it was looking at the effects of stress on economic decision making. So very similar to the scarcity literature, but very yeah. specifically focused on the mechanism of stress. And it, that, that's where kind of his neuroscience background came in. And so he got this big grant and he wanted to really study how stress affects poverty in the context of poverty, right? So uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this more. Everything in behavioral science back then is really weird. Well, you know, Western educated, industrialized, <laughs> rich and democratic. He wanted yeah. to start a lab there. So he talked to IPA, Innovations for Poverty Action, that does a lot of the, you know, big development, randomized control trials, really the forefathers of a lot of behavioral development, even though, you know, it's not thought of that way. Um, yeah. And they set up a lab. And so when I started, it was about a year in, I was a PhD student and we're, we're really doing is implementing academic research, looking at the effects of stress on economic decision-making. Uh, I'll go back to that because there's some really interesting stories around how to stress people out in the right context. Um, and so we can, <laughs> we can right. talk about that later. But basically okay. the idea first was how do we bring this context to academia, right? And with the goal of poverty alleviation, how do we do that? Um, and it's one thing to start a, and run a really, a really well-run lab that's of the same quality that you might find in any of the universities here in the States or in Europe. Um, but then we thought, you know, it's one thing to bring academia a better appreciation, a better context, but we're still not really bringing the policymakers to academia, right? Mm. It's, we see it now, right? Like we, you, you run the study, it sits for a long time, you finally dust it off, it's a working paper, you publish it, even if it gets into the QJE, say, it takes you a long time to then eventually write the book, literally, that will win you the Nobel Prize, that will change people's mind about how to do <laughs> development, right? And so right, we thought we right. don't necessarily want to wait 10 years for that to happen. And then we started really thinking about an applied side of behavioral science, right? So, so as it stands today, we have kind of two kind of arms. We work really heavily with, with academics all over the world to implement kind of their research agenda and then we work in a very applied setting doing, you know, um, applied behavioral science. You know, this is the same stuff, you know, similar stuff, BIT and Ideas42 and BE Works. We basically trying to apply that academic sensibility into kind of real world problems. And, and so we kind of are sitting at that fusion a bit between, between those two things, like a lot of other organizations. Um, so, yeah, we've been around since 2013 um, and, yeah, have been kind of steadily growing and and falling and growing and falling as uh, as the world changes and as covid changes um but it's uh but it's been a good ride and and uh it's exciting it's an exciting place to be so talk more about this for for listeners who are interested in behavioral science and they hear you throw out words like practitioner and and academics you know the academia side versus the acad the practitioner side can you just spend a little bit more uh, especially from the Busara Center's perspective, yeah. uh, Channing, would you would you just talk more about those those two terms and what they mean in your world? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, again, this might be way out there, so feel free to cut this. But I, I kind of think of it as in like a in like a machine learning way, like a like a like a practical behavioral science. You're, you're in data science. You're doing the machine learning. I don't I don't really care why it works. I just want it to work, right? I want to change some outcome, right? But like. Yeah. You really want to know if you're an academic why that matters, right? And and I think you in in general you do want to know why, but like the academics really care about like really breaking down candidate mechanisms into its smallest little components and testing those things against each other and getting really sharp hypotheses about these things. Uh, and in the practical sense, they're like, why aren't people downloading my app? Like, 
And then you'll say, oh, there's this great literature on this other stuff. Like we can test all these mechanisms. Like I don't care. Make this thing work. Right. And, and, and you know, like I, I kid and, and that's, you know, I think that's what the behavioral science teams at Uber and, and Google do. But like it's not really different in development. Right. People are trying to alleviate poverty. They have programs that they think are effective if only people use them. Right. They have savings programs that are great if people use them, right? And so a lot of the behavioral things that you want to see is the same things you always see, uptake, retention, scalability, and we tackle those same things. So an academic, I think, is really interested really deeply in the why. And when you get to the applied side, you're like the how. How do you actually do this? How do you actually take some of these ideas and put it into a system, a much messier system, to get to the outcome that I really care about? So, so on the website, and you guys talk about the your five learnings that you did over the first five years of of your existence, and it was yep. you know one is test for insights, apply for impact. Two is impact starts early. Three biases are local. Four behavioral science is still weird, and five lab lab research is becoming easier and faster. So, can you just help us understand a little bit about that? And then I definitely want to get back to like stress and scarcity and some of those factors as we go in. But maybe that can come out in some of this too. Um, I'll just maybe just spend a sentence on each of them. I mean, the first one on testing for impact, uh, uh, testing for insights, and applying for impact is exactly what I what what I was saying earlier. Is that like when when you're a practitioner, you don't really care why. You just want something that's going to work, right? And this is probably true for anyone that does applied work, whether it's consult, you know, yeah. if you're a consultant, like you have a really good idea and you're saying, but, but I just, you know, let's test that as we go and we'll learn and we'll iterate. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like you tell me the idea, right? So, so for us, we try to take like a smaller setting, try to find the mechanism that we think is right. You don't necessarily need to tell the client about that, right? You need to come up with the thing that you believe is your best shot, right? And then you need to tell them, this is my best shot, you should apply this. And yes, along the way, if you can then evaluate that and iterate that, that's great. But not everyone has that luxury. And I think that's one thing that we've really learned. Um, the second one in impact starts early is, is also really key. And especially this happens in development, or maybe this happens everywhere, right? Where like, good ideas are aren't really good ideas if, 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 if they don't actually work, right? Like, so everyone is like, <laughs> I have this great program. It, it's, it's so wonderful. It, it's, it's this multifaceted, you know, multi-layered model that, that is really beautiful. But like, the only problem is people don't use it. I'm like, well, maybe that program isn't so good to begin with, right? So, so people come to us to, to get people to use their program. And I say, well, maybe you should have started earlier, a little bit earlier, thought through it, right? Whether it's, within the myriad of behavioral science tools, right? It doesn't have to be just nudges, but just think more carefully when you're first starting out, even simple things like design thinking, human-centered design, really getting into the, someone's mindset, like start that process really early rather than come to a behavioral science to fix your problems. I've seen this actually being less and less relevant over time as behavioral science gets more and more popular. When it first came out a couple of years ago, right? Like especially in development, Everyone said this is the silver bullet, right? This is the new, this is the new thing. Okay, solve this for me, right? And and I think mm. you know that's not really how behavioral science works, right? Like it's like start early, let's go on this journey together. And a lot of times I tell them like, behavioral science is your last five percent. It's the cherry on top, right? But it's it's not going to fix a broken program. If your program is broken, you need to kind of start over. So that's that's where where we think about impact starting early. Um, 
biases are local. That one is really interesting because it, it kind of goes to this weird problem. And so I can address yeah. it together, right? And so, as I mentioned, like this is Joe Heinrich's work on the Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic um, that a lot of the social sciences are still that, right? And and I think that's true both in terms of the um, the population that you study and in terms of the way that you think about those insights, right? And so, so it's both the researchers and the population, and that's a problem, right? And so you want to solve for them both at the same time. And when you think about that, I think you want to start thinking about like, when we're applying things into a development context, into a different context, it isn't enough to just take these three things, these papers that worked, you know, in Cambridge and say, okay, they're going to work here, right? You need to contextualize them. You need to think hard about them. Like when we did a big study on um, uh, like taking really classic Kahneman diversity um, uh, biases and heuristics, and we tested them in actually now five different populations, but four different populations to start. Um, Princeton, right, okay. with, with grad students from, from Woodrow Wilson uh, with, in collaboration with Princeton professors. Trenton, New Jersey, right, which is a low-income area um, just outside of Princeton. Strathmore University, which is a private Kenyan university, kind of an elite okay. private Kenyan university. And then Kibera, right, a big informal area there. And what we found, right, was that context matters a ton. There are some things that Kenyans and Americans got very differently and there are some things that that wealthy students and poor students got very, or wealthy people and poor people got very differently, right? And so you can't just blindly apply these things. And, and the last thing we did, and I can send you the blog on this, it's really interesting. We went to India with the Center for Social Behavior Change, which is a really cool group out there that's doing really cool behavioral science work. And we took some of them and then we tried to adapt the problem you know, so if you take like uh, the representative heuristic, the Linda problem, right? Yeah. We tried the Linda problem, really just standard across, and nobody got it, right? No, what what's a nuclear demonstration? Like, who cares, right? And then you had to adapt it. So you adapt it. You work with with that local population to adapt that to, to then trigger the bias. So it's not that the bias doesn't work; it's that we cannot use the same methods. We cannot use the same script to then try to try to instantiate that bias, right? So you have to do that contextualization work very carefully. So that's that's just part of this, this idea that, you know, you need to, I, I think everyone knows this by now, but you need to spend time really understanding what is that mechanism and then how do you contextualize that mechanism to the population that you're, that you're trying to kind of, kind of work with. Yeah. So, so, so for our listeners, the, the Linda problem, if you haven't heard about this, this is where you're given the, the data about a woman uh, and, and it, it gives her some definite uh, distinctions about who she is and various different things. And it asks if she is a banker or if she is a banker who is a feminist. And people, because of the the descriptions that they use, that people tend to say a, a banker with, uh, with with as a feminist, uh, which is a subset of being a banker, and thus it it can't be true. And mm-hmm. so uh, those those are the factors. And so what you're saying is that that didn't work in in India, yep. it, probably because they're like, oh, and this doesn't make sense right. in, in <laughs> our world life, right? Yep. So you had to come up with a different scenario. But the 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 aspect of that was still relevant. It was just in how it was presented to them that it didn't make sense, and therefore they couldn't they couldn't comprehend. Is that exactly exactly everyone? You know, they you can fall for that representative heuristic, right? You, that heuristic exists in the minds of people, mm-hmm. but when you're presenting it in such a foreign 
way out of context of their daily lives, you're not triggering that same thing. In fact, the first thing we tried was working with the team, with our own research team, to try to create this, this problem. And then we presented it back to, to the, the population. And it, we got no results because everyone said, oh, this person's a housewife. Like there's nothing else. Like, can, oh. This person can only be a housewife. And we're like, oh, so that first attempt at contextualization just didn't work. So, you know, it's, it's, it's also then working with the population to just contextualize because the, the, the group, you know, of us who live in Nairobi and the group at CSBC that live in Delhi, maybe we're not the right people in for rural India, right. To, to contextualize. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's this hyper localization, like, and you've got to draw the line somewhere, but it is something that you really have to think about. Well, so uh, l- let me just get back to the the general theme here: is that uh, biases are local. Do the biases exist though on some universal level? Would do you ag- agree with that, or do you, do you I, disagree with that? No, I think so. I mean, again, I wish that we had the budget to really explore this, and you know, if 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 anyone with deep pockets is interested, come come talk to us. Um, <laughs> but but I do think, yeah, I mean, I do think that some of these concepts that are are being triggered are. Or have some aspect of universality to them, and maybe there's other ones that you know we could find here in Kenya that that then could just be triggered, you know, in America or in Europe, and we just don't know how to trigger them, right? I think it is. It's, it's just the way that we we present it, the way that we try to pull on that heuristic, is not necessarily going to work out of context. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating concept when you think about. All right. So, is it the way that things are presented, or is that is the heuristic, is the bias universal, yeah. or is it only local in those those certain specifics? And I think that obviously more research is needed. But you know, it, oh my gosh, you, you think about all the all the things that could happen with that. And then yeah. you know, with the, the the hard part about this, and this is the part I know you've talked about it at other other places, is just you know, it's weird. Is that the the studies that have been done. Are, are on that Western educated, mm-hmm. you know, population. And so you, you don't have the information to be able to, to be able to say in, in Nairobi, this is how this is going to impact it. Or in, you know, South America, yep. in Brazil, in a ghetto, it's going yep. to be this way versus, you know, that. And I was fascinated with your work that just, it was both not just in location, but it was in economics and various different things. And even that, I think, Again, most studies are done, many of the studies, not most, many of the studies are done with college students who, you know, again, economically probably better off than the vast majority of people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Let's get back to scarcity. Mm -hmm. You you, you teed up the scarcity. Tell tell us about some of the work that you're doing um, uh, in the way people get stressed out and the way that they deal with, uh, with, with scarcity in in impoverished situations. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is, I, I think I told you guys this maybe even before we started, I'm, I'm a guy that fell into this situation. None of these ideas are mine. Um, <laughs> this is very much, this is very much Johannes's uh, idea and, and his work that he of course will very graciously say is built on other people's work, but, but you know, it was, is, is what he did his kind of PhD on and what he got this big uh, grant for. And, and the idea is very similar to scarcity is that people uh, there's a psychological poverty trap, right? Um, that, you know, it's not that, it's not that, um, you know, that poor people are poor because of like some fundamental thing. It's that anyone put in the instance of poverty is going to act in the exact same way. So, so we wanted to look at this idea that when, when you are placed in the instance of poverty, you become stressed. When you become stressed, you make bad decisions economically. And when you make bad economic decisions, you become more poor, right? And it, and it creates this kind of really vicious cycle. And um, 
so so we did some work there in the lab. Uh, he he basically did a number of different studies, and and again he can probably flame me on Twitter if I've gotten this wrong, but he did a number of different studies. So he did the study with Jeremy Shapiro on the question of if I make people less poor, are they less stressed, right? So this is the very classic unconditional cash transfer study with GiveDirectly, where they gave people a year's wages and measured a number of different outcomes. GiveDirectly is now scaling that up all over the place. And um, and he, he actually saw that when, when I give people cash, they their cortisol levels go down, they become less stressed, right? The second thing that we looked at um, was if we, you know, let's test, you know, different kinds of, of stress relief. Let's test cash versus health insurance, right? Which is a different kind of reliever of stress, right? Mm -hmm. that, that gives you a little bit of peace of mind. Um, and so that we saw that a small amount of cash actually doesn't do that much, but, but health insurance actually does reduce stress, even when people don't use the health insurance because we had admin data on it. They don't even use the health insurance. We also saw, and this wasn't in our pre-analysis plan, so take it with a huge grain of salt, that people literally slept more when they were on health insurance. They slept better, right? They could sleep at night. Um, so that was a really cute thing that 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 I thought that was there. And, and then the final thing that you want to look at then, right, if we think that there is good this linkage between alleviating poverty and alleviating stress, does adding stress make your decision-making worse, right? And so mm. really hard to do that in the field. Um, maybe you can look for some natural experiments, but we wanted to then to just test that in the lab. So what we did was we took a bunch of psychological, like from, from psych, we took those psych stressors and then we applied them in the lab in Nairobi and then we measured economic outcomes. Um, so there's there's there was three psych stressors that we used, or four, four psych stressors that we used. We used the Trier social stress test, and this is essentially you giving a speech in front of another, a bunch of other people. That's shown reliably in the psych literature to stress people out. Um, and so you're evaluated and you, you know, you're speaking in front of a panel. The, the second one is the cold presser task. You put your hand into a freezing bucket of ice water, and that physiologically raises your cortisol levels. Um, so that's a physical stressor instead of a social stressor. And then I created a game that's supposed to be like a financial stressor. So it's it's kind of like a, a real-time common pool resource game where this pool of money grows over time. And if you press the button to collect it, you get all that money. But you're playing with four other people that all are going to press a button as soon as possible, right? Because if, if the three of us are playing and we wait to the end, we can all split $100. But I know that. So if I wait until one second before the end and click it, I get it all myself. But Tim knows mm -hmm. that. So he's going to wait till 98 seconds and, and oh, so on and so wow. forth. And it devolves wow. itself into this game where everyone presses the button immediately. Everyone's extremely frustrated. And, and that we hypothesize that that caused some stress. And then the fourth thing, um, which which they did, is they looked at uh, hydrocortisone, right? Like actually administering hydrocortisone, a, a, a pharmacological stressor. And so they oh, looked wow. at these these four. We our job in those early days was to kind of pilot and try to look at these four different kinds of of stress mechanisms. Um, and that was the you know that was the early days at Busara. That was that was the first kind of three years at Busara. I was looking at that, and they they just finally finished this super big big. I think it was ended up being the largest. Uh, farmer, pharmacological study of hydrocortisone ever done. Um, and it was with Nathan, it was Johannes Haushofer, Nathan Nunn, and uh, Nancy Xian, um, and, and they, they, they were looking at in-group, out-group behavior with, with pharmacological stressors. So, yeah, so, so and 
I'm, I'm dancing around the results. Uh, you know, we saw, at least in the early stuff, lots of mistakes, which, which led to kind of lower power. We didn't see huge effects. We, I don't even remember what they were. I think the, the, the financial stressor had some effect on time preference, um, but we didn't see a lot on any of the other, on any of the markers. Again, we might've measured it wrong, right? So two things that we did, we might've had the wrong inputs, the wrong stressors and the wrong measurements. So mm-hmm. I'll tell you a story about the stressors, right? Like, and this is kind of funny and, and kind of cute, um, but more of a, I'm saying it more of a lesson to experimenters to think harder about contextualizing your, your interventions. And this is not an admonishment of the population I'm working with. It's actually an admonishment of us as researchers. So we did the Trier social stress test, standing in front of a panel, you're speaking to people. Afterwards, we would do debriefing, right? Of course, you want to find out if this is working or not. And, and they're like, yeah, it's, it's okay, right? It's fine. Um, but why, why are we standing in front of butchers? Like what's going on here? And, and the reason was we put white coats on people because that's medical doctors. That's a panel. And everyone was like, what, what are you doing? Why are we standing in front of butchers? And in Kenya, people wear white coats when they're butchers. Right. So it just made no context to them. They had no idea. The second thing is Kenyans love speaking. They love public speaking. Uh, if you ever go to Kenya, you'll see like they, you know people can't wait to to give that kind of hold court in front of people. So it wasn't very stressful for them. So that was kind of interesting to note. Um, and so you might you know we might have gotten that wrong. And the other one we we got wrong, I think maybe is is when we're measuring time preference, right? Like. Again, I'm not, I, I'm, a, I'm a trained economist, but that's not my specialty. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff, literature on time preference. We tried different things. We tried titration. We tried, um, uh, what was the other one? Uh, we tried the convex time budgets and all these other things. But early on, we realized that people were just like, would take any amount of money. It didn't matter. They want the money right mm. now, right? And, and again, we hadn't really thought mm. about how, that really works when we were doing a titration. So a titration exercise, you want this much now or this much later. If you say later, I'm going to make the now more attractive. If you say now, I'm going to make the later more attractive. And they just always wanted the now. And those time, and I realized that the time horizons that we would look at are annual time horizons, right? That doesn't make any sense to someone in Kibera that wants money for stuff today, right? And a, yeah. a year from now yeah. might as well be forever. And so um, it, it does, it, it, I think the measurement is wrong. Uh, I think there's a lot of learnings in there, but but the I think the thrust is right. I do still believe in the mechanism. I believe in scarcity. I believe that those are drivers of poverty and and drivers of of psychological poverty traps. Um, but those are really interesting kind of early day studies on on thinking about how how we've gotten all these things wrong and why I think Busara is really important. And I encourage researchers to reach out to us because I don't want people to make the same mistakes that we did, right? Why make the same mistakes? Let's, let's kind of work together to, to make the field better. Yeah, I find it interesting. You, you, you talk about this, this concept of time and with, with money. Yep. And, and to that point, it, it is something that you go, oh, well, this is a standard that we were looking at a year out, various mm-hmm. different pieces, and this is how it's worked again. It gets back to some of that weird stuff that yep. we go. You know, you, you look at the, at the literature, and that seems perfectly reasonable to do. Mm-hmm. And yet what it sounds like is there's probably some local biases there, maybe the culture of, you know, we, we don't, nobody even thinks about saving yeah. for a, a year out and, yep. and various different pieces, you know, but that's stuff that you need to know and figure out. That is, uh, it's, it's mind boggling to think that we make these assumptions so quickly and so, yeah. so readily that it doesn't even come to bear until we do something. And it's like, well, this, 
Right. <laughs> yeah, I was I was reading a, a thread on Reddit the other if, and if you want to be a good behavioral science, you should like look at Reddit, especially like the explain it like I'm five or like ask historians. But someone asked, like, why is it that like perspective in paintings wasn't made until like the 1800s, right? And yeah. and and people were like people responded, well, it was a little bit, but like they were they were optimizing for something completely differently. And and one of the interesting things is someone someone said, and again, this is totally unverified, but it made sense to me, so I'm going to say it again. This is how misinformation <laughs> spreads, by the way. But someone <laughs> someone said to me, someone said there, like, once you saw a photo, you could think now of a canvas as a plane into a deeper field of view. Before that, there was no context on why I would want to use perspective as an item. And the same, once you saw a video, you could think about how these these objects interacted with each other. And now it's very common to look at a frame on the wall and expect to see some kind of perspective. So some see through it, but before the photograph, there was never any there was never any context to which to think, see through something, right? That that's a window to something. No, it was literally like decorating a glass or decorating something else or braiding your hair, right? It was a medium to tell a story and to give art. So it's not that the artists were any less sophisticated or talented. It's that they were just thinking about completely different things. And until you realize that context, you're really not going to get it. And you're going to place judgments that really are not, that are not correct. And I thought that was a really interesting analog. Yeah, I like the the concept of placing judgment too, because we do we we tend to place judgment on those things, and and really it's not a judgment case; it is a case of where people are at and and what they're focusing in on. Yep. It, it gets to some of the you know I've, we we've talked with some people recently where you know the, this idea that we're irrational when we make these decisions that may go against some of our other things. And they're mm -hmm. going, that, it's not really irrational. It's just, yep. they're focusing on, on different aspects that at that point are more, more salient to them and yep. thus are, are there. It gets back to, you know, classic economist utility and, and how do you <laughs> measure utility and, yep. and is that utility the same for you as it is for me. Exactly. I saw, I, you know, when I was doing my PhD work in the Philippines, we did some early, like some time preference pilots and we kept getting negative interest rates. And we're like, why, why are people choosing less money in the future than, than money now? And it was a very common phenomenon. And when we asked people, they're like, oh yeah, that's cause like, that's cause the holidays are coming up. Right. And like, yeah. I want that money then. Right. Like <laughs> it makes sense. If you give me the money now, I'm going to spend it or someone's going to ask for it. Right. There's a kin tax. And so once you understand it, it makes, it is actually rational. It's just you have to really spend the time to understand that. Yeah, that is fantastic. Uh, I do, and I do love that analog, actually. It, it makes me think about also expanding, uh, not just beyond weird, but uh, when we talked to John Barge, he, he talked about, you know, when someone was trying to replicate one of his studies and didn't do it exactly right, and then the study doesn't replicate, one of the judgments is, well, the original study must have been bad. Well, no, actually yeah. all the data was really good. But what we learn is that there are nuances in the way that those approaches get applied and context matters a great deal. Uh, and I, I absolutely love this. Um, would it be too early if, if we you teed up this opportunity to talk about music? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, Channing, but I'm like, I'm dying to know like what your weird and eclectic musical tastes are. Do you have a COVID playlist that you're working on right now? No, I have a, it's weird. I, I listen to weird, weird music. Um, my wife is always like, you know, she has to like two things that she tells me. One, you have no feelings. You don't, you don't feel anything ever. What? And then two, you like, you, you watch, you watch the weirdest stuff on YouTube, right? Like you don't actually watch TV, you watch YouTube. And then, but you, you listen to dark 
quirkiest, weirdest music ever. Like, why is that? Why are you like so standard in all these other things and, and listen to weird music? And I, I tell her, I don't, I don't know why. Um, but yeah, sure. Let's talk, let's talk music. I have a, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a, well, it's a range. It's not uh, that interesting to tell you the truth, but it, it, there's, a well, no, I, 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 my, my daughter went through a, a phase where she was listening to, she was 13 years old and she was listening to the darkest stuff that I could ever imagine. And I said, really, what's going on? Like my first thought is, oh my gosh, I'm being a bad dad. You know, she's, you know, really sick or something. She's like, no, just listening to sad songs makes me feel like yeah. they're, they're dealing with something that's worse off than I'm dealing with. I'm like, yeah. oh, I, I guess that's okay. <laughs> 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 but what's what's on your playlist right now? Yeah, what, what, you know, what, the, the, the last album I listened to was by Tame Impala. I don't know if you guys know them. Really great Australian kind of psych rock band that does that's kind of dipped into kind of synthy music. Really, really awesome. I, I'd very highly recommend it. Um, the early stuff like sounds like kind of like a Rocky Beatles. He said his voice sounds like John Lennon, and then later stuff actually leans on kind of like disco and and funk kind of almost like a daft punky type of but but a little okay. bit harder on the bass the other the other album that i listened to recently was in back in hawaii cleaning my dad's roof was uh rumors by fleetwood mac man that ah. that that album is <laughs> so good and i'm like why why do kids hate parents music right like that that record was sitting in my dad's record player for forever, <laughs> and, I never listened to it. and man every one of those tracks is well like for younger people every one of those tracks is like oh that's on this album oh that's on this album and it's just like <laughs> hit after hit after hit and the and the production yeah. there is just exquisite so listening to a little bit of that um listening to a little bit of uh, there's this artist called joji he's like this kind of first asian american to kind of hit the billboard r&b top 200 really interesting kind of soulful R&B kind of kind of stuff. So it's just a just a range. Oh, I know that Fleet Foxes their new album is really good. That just came out. Really love really love that music as well. So it's oh. it's kind of this range of like just popular enough that it would show up on Spotify but not I'm not cool enough that like I found something that like hasn't been there yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's you talk about Fleetwood Mac and I think the, the they got back up into the top. I think rumors got back up from into TikTok, the top hundred yeah. from, from the TikTok yeah. video that the guy going with his cranberry juice and, <laughs> and skateboarding down to, to the, the Fleetwood Mac song. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, that's how our kids, it's funny. I have kids, you know, that are 13 and or 14 and 10 and my 10 year old, she gets her music from TikTok. I yeah, mean, that's, yeah. that's how she finds and, and likes music is what gets played at the underneath all of these memes that TikTok mm-hmm. uses and they do it. It's, it's a fascinating way of thinking about that. And yeah, they use a bunch of the music that I used to listen to. And so it's right. kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, it kind of recycles. One of my favorite YouTube channels is a guy that like watches classic rock with his kids and just like, you know, it's like my kid reacts to the first time to Freddie Mercury and you're just like, Oh yeah, that's pretty. And they're kind of like, Whoa, this thing, this thing hits harder than it should. Like, this is really cool. So like, I, I like that. I, I, I think there's a lot to learn from older generations music. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Okay. So do you like to listen to music while you work? Yeah, I do. I, I, I I'm one of those people, like I haven't gotten into that lo-fi thing yet. I, I just like listen to listening to albums and, and going into it. Um, Working from home isn't good because you can do that. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I'm a big, I'm a big kind of listen to music and, and kind of go deep into into whatever I'm working on for sure. Wow, that's amazing. So, give us a feel for what the lockdown is like in Nairobi right now. 
or yeah. level of degree of lockdown. I, I I don't mean to make assumptions. Yeah, yeah, sure. So so when it started, you know, up until like a few months ago, it was weird, right? Like all of Africa was like, there was this curiosity, like why hasn't it gotten worse, right? Like when COVID first came out, people were like, this is, this is going to be horrible, right? Like we have people packed together that are that are in low income areas that do not have access to services. We have very few ventilators. And then up until maybe July or August, like it was seemed fine. Like very few cases. They were still like empty ICUs. And that was like really great. Now it's starting to tick up again. The government was really good. They they really instituted you have to wear a mask anytime you're outside. And so most people do it, and especially the expats, because the police now have an excuse to get more bribes out of you. Um, mm. But but then they started opening up a little by little, um, opening up the restaurants, and then they opened up the bars, and they changed the curfew from like nine to seven to like eleven to four, and then it spiked, and now it's back. Now they've kind of locked things down. They've mm. they've closed. You can't sell alcohol anymore. You have to wear a mask again. Ten to six, I think, is the curfew now. But people are kind of living their life. It's really weird. And and I've seen some information that like based on some of the antibody tests and stuff, it seems like a lot of people have gotten it and are just asymptomatic. Maybe it's because we have a young population, mm. um, but it, it's almost back to normal. And and I can tell that because the proxy is always traffic and the traffic is getting pretty bad again. So, <laughs> Wow. Well, I mean, in the US, dark skinned people have definitely been impacted significantly greater yeah. than yeah. than yeah. lighter skinned people yeah. Uh, yeah and and there's been discussion about the possibly uh connection to vitamin d hmm. on that uh i would think nairobi has got a lot of dark-skinned people it is yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah the risk could be significantly higher yeah 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 and it's surprising I, and let's see how it how it comes back uh if it you know as the trajectory starts to go back up again maybe we just missed it maybe it was just like a slow first wave and, and we're gonna hit it but so far it seems it seems like it's been relatively spared, but again, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, yeah. I'm not gonna yeah. go for well, it. Well, it was, it was interesting. We talked with Anurag Vaish uh, um, from India, mm -hmm. uh, right as it was kind of big in the United States early on, and it was just hitting there. And yeah. he was telling some of the same things. Look, we have, we have a number of people in poverty. They are smashed together in these these locations where mm -hmm. you can't social distance, and we're just waiting for it. And actually, India did get yep. it pretty bad for a yep. while. So, yep. so you know, there there are those things. That, you know, some the the crazy thing about this is that it's just so uncertain and unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And and do you get a super spreader event that that then goes and and has other super spreader events, or did you, you know, that one person wear the mask that that stopped that, and thus you didn't have that massive breakout? So, yep. those are the the weird dynamics of COVID in this world, which is again from a behavioral perspective, you look at that and you think about people and and their behaviors, and right now, given. Hopefully the the vaccines come come quickly and they work and yep. and they're they're good. But right now the only way to protect ourselves is behaviorally, and you know some people buy into it, mm -hmm. and other people are adamantly against it. And it's just it's particularly in the United States yep. where. Yep it's become politicized, which is well, really just sad. Well, and yeah, do you see yeah. the same, is there a politicization of mask wearing or any kind of, uh, you know, defenses in, uh, in the country? Uh, in in Kenya? Kenya, I'm not again, like, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll preface, you know, I don't want to spread mis misinformation. This is just Channing's opinion about things. That's um, fair enough. <laughs> uh, you know, in Kenya, it doesn't seem that political, but then you see countries like Tanzania, right. Who very early on said, there is no more COVID. There's no COVID in this country. Right. And they're still operating off the assumption. Right. So, 
in that sense, it, it maybe it's political country by country. Um, mm. I know in Madagascar, the, you know, they had some some tonic that that was supposed to cure COVID, and it I I'm very sure that it doesn't. Um, so <laughs> oh. so I think oh, I think it is used, you know, for for political gain or you know or for control. Um, yeah, and I, I, that was that was really scary, right? Because we had set all these rules at Busara about how do we open up or close based on you know different guidance, and then Tanzania was like, oh, "There's no more COVID," and then we're like, "No, no, we're still not going to work there." Sorry, like that's yeah. I'm I'm not sure that 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 that's necessarily true. Uh, so I, I do think it has gotten political. Channing, thank you so so very much for taking time and talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kurt. This is great. And if you guys are ever on this side of the world, pop down to Nairobi. It would be great to have you. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation, have a free-flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our contextually impacted brains. Ooh, yeah. Context matters, doesn't it? You love that statement, and it is so true, so true. And particularly given the context that Channing is talking about, not just within different organizations or different pieces, but different parts of the world. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Well, so here's my assumption. Everybody digs context matters. Isn't that a fair <laughs> assumption? It is. I think, I think if there's one truth in the world, I think that's it. That, 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 <laughs> the, 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 one, the one and only truth. But assumptions is something that we should probably talk about. Are you making an assumption that we should talk about that? Uh, no, I'm making a suggestion. Actually. Oh, okay. Well, the suggestion I think is true. There you go. So let's talk about assumptions, Tim. What about assumptions? Well, I really love the idea that that Channing teed up this this idea when we were talking about the twenty five cent the, the coin. Yeah, right? and and the response rates on the coin varied from in condition to condition. My assumption was that if you give someone a coin and you give them the rate of ret- a great re- rate of return, like twenty percent or ten percent, that that's going to reward people more and engage more people than if you just give them a coin. But that's not what the data said. The yeah. data said the coin alone is actually a stronger engagement tool than the coin plus the additional um, the additional return. And I thought this is why we need to collect data. This is why assumptions and intuition aren't always right. And, 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 we, even- and we, so we need to test stuff. We need to study stuff. We need to put them into, into situations where we can suss out these different aspects, aspects of the data and understand what the best and most engaging tool is. Well, and this is one of the things, too, that we realize that organizations often miss. And, and we've talked to a lot of people from Charlotte Blank to uh, Michael Hallsworth who talk about you know, you can do an intervention and that intervention shows a, a increase, but you're not knowing if that increase is as big of increase as you could get. You know, Michael Hallsworth talks about, yeah, we, we wrote this one letter, changed it up and all that showed a 2% increase. But when we compared it to these nine other letters that we had, that 2% increase was, you know, one of the bottom ones versus, you know, some of these right. others that showed four or five or 6% increase. Don't quote me on those percentages because they're probably wrong. However, the, the in- illustration the, purposes only illustration <laughs> purposes only. The idea is that we need to test and to look at the data to really understand what is happening, that we base our assumptions on reality and not just on gut feel. 
Wow, that is a statement to take to the bank. Let's <laughs> let's use is that with your coin and the ten percent, or is it just the coin alone that you're taking to the bank? <laughs> no, that statement was 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 pretty rich. What what stood out for you? What what where do you want to to take our grooving session, Kurt? Oh man, I could take our grooving session so many ways. Uh, you know, I think really an interesting piece of this is just be, before we even get into to, to just some of the conversations that we had is the work that Becerra is doing, right? Fantastic. Is fantastic. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're founded to help solve these really big problems, like eliminating poverty, like um, looking at different things and the way that they go about that work, partnering with practitioners, Ideas 42, BE Works, et cetera. Sometimes, you know, universities, Duke University, and maybe in the future with, you know, the Lantern Group and and Behavior Alchemy, right? Uh, that'll be one of those things that we can we can maybe dream about, right? Let's but get in line. Are, yes. Get in line. <laughs> but those are really, I think, cool aspects and and showing that there is power in applying behavioral science to real world problems that have seemed pretty insurmountable in the past and that yeah behavioral science isn't necessarily this magic wand that you can just wave and be done with it but it's giving you some more tools really looking at real world data and taking all that and making a big impact on people's lives yeah. so i've yeah. thought of behavioral science as being very horizontal, that the application to virtually any kind of human issue could be at least addressed, if not solved. Uh, but it's certainly at least addressed with the application of behavioral science. And I, I've got a more nuanced view of that. And it starts with our conversation with John Barge, when we talked about replication, and about context, and about how the setup of one room might be slightly different. The color on the walls in one one study room might be different than the color of the walls on a different study room. And that that tiny little difference in in priming could have an influence on the way uh, people respond in, in even in a lab situation. And Channing just drove that home that context is such an important part of the of what we're doing that in the effort to solve, uh, a problem as huge as poverty is can use a set of very horizontal tools like behavioral science, but it's going to have to be applied in very context-specific ways. And I love that Busara Institute is is doing that. I'd love to see corporations. You know, I mean, wouldn't it be cool? I mean, sure, Uber and Google and Facebook. You know, they they kind of say that they've got an internal setup, right? But what if you know if companies like IBM and and Verizon and you know uh, Vodafone and major organizations had ongoing partnerships with universities to engage in the study of this work to do these applications on in a context sensitive basis. I think it would be fantastic. Well, I think it's really an important piece, right? If we're going to take the power of behavioral science, it is context dependent, which is fascinating. It's also disheartening to a degree because you want to find these universal truths that you can just apply, that you can go, well, this is how humans respond. And what I think we're finding more and more is that those are not always the case, that there are those 
the pink wall versus the blue wall in the room has an impact. And so you, there are so many variables involved that it's hard to just say, well, we can apply loss aversion here, or we can apply this type of behavioral mm -hmm. science intervention without really understanding some of those other aspects that could be influencing the outcome. And yeah. that makes it difficult. And so that makes, I think yeah. for organizations, it's much, it's less likely for them to, to do it because it isn't easy. And you've just added another piece of friction in there. But I think that's, that's really a key piece. And I, I know you've tried to do some <laughs> of this work, right? With some of your, you know, right? Haven't you? Yeah, I've tried a lot. Yeah. My, in my last job, I, I think I, I totaled some five dozen proposals, you know, to companies just trying to engage them. And, you know, when they said, yeah, I'm, I'm interested, let's do a study, you know, and I think that there were more than 60 times that I actually uh, provided proposals to companies. And those were, those were proposals to say, let's do the study, let's do a pilot, let's do something that is actually exploring this so that we can get some data on what works yes. and what doesn't work, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But of course, you know, a, a very small number of them actually said, okay, let's, let's actually go forward with this. Oh, I think well, how many? I think about five. <laughs> you know, out of like, 60. Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. So, uh, but then, but of the five that like, you know, said that they thought it was a good idea, only three of those companies actually said, okay, let's go ahead and do it. Even though, <laughs> so actually, or actually <laughs> did the work. Five, it's three now. Well, and, okay. and only two of them actually completed the study portion. <laughs> so we're getting smaller. <laughs> okay. And, and let's take it one step further. Of the companies, of the two companies that actually did the studies, both of them said, no, we're not going to allow the data to be published. <laughs> so, so, so what you're telling me, Tim, what, what you're telling me, Tim, is, is that you wouldn't make a good salesperson or, or, <laughs> or, or, or that you need to take a few more lessons from Dr. Cialdini. Is that, is that what this is? You need Maybe. to be able to persuade people a little bit more. Yes. All joking, all joking aside, I think that you're pointing to a cultural norm within organizations. Right, right. There is this idea that why would we want to study something? And I think it's been reinforced in, in many of the, the corporate literature that's out there about just do it, you know, going in and, and just yeah. you know, applying, trying things as opposed to testing things. And, and to a certain degree, I buy into that. But then I also look at this and go, but we don't know what we don't know. And so the only way that we can do that is through some of these testings. And yes, there are friction points to that. It costs more, it slows things down. It could show that the you know favorite idea by the VP or the president doesn't work and then they're gonna lose face. All of those different factors are involved and that makes it hard to get companies to agree to, but yet if they did, you can maybe get some of that. You can understand that, wow, the coin by itself works yeah. versus the coin and the, the increased percentage of, of return of rate. You, you point out something really important that there is a sort of a just do it mindset in the corporate world, whereas the academic mindset is let's figure it out. Let's understand. Let's understand why. And the practitioner side, the corporate side is just looking, well, how can we get this done? Let's just go and do it. And yeah. it would be wonderful, 
really wonderful if we could have more of a mind shift in mind state or mindset in the corporate world to have people who don't get canned for asking the question for to start with and <laughs> and ask the question why are people doing this let's try to understand this better that i think that would be really cool well and, and to a certain degree i understand this i i don't care why i just like the results but if you understand the why you can replicate it much easier or you can understand maybe even better how you can get even better results so right right so they, it's not just about this just let's get it done and and i don't care the the way that it happens but if you understand the way that it happens that can lead you to greater insights which i think is a good thing overall all right i, I think so too. boy we could beat this dead horse for a long time but yeah but what else what else should we talk about here kurt how about um, context matters you, so, yeah. we, we did, <laughs> isn't that yeah. what we've been talking about <laughs> oh i guess we have okay well let's talk about poverty then. how about that this was an interesting aspect where Channing is talking about the work that they're doing with poverty and looking at this and this idea that poverty um, plays a really big impact on the behaviors that people are doing. And so mm -hmm. the, the, the idea that poverty itself is impacting those behaviors and kind of a reinforcing loop on some of the stuff is really, I think, important. Right, that we have, now we have data because of the Busara Center on the impact uh, of stress on and the relationship between stress and poverty, that mm -hmm. they've measured cortisone levels and cortisone is what connects to stress in our system, right? Yeah. So, so now that we have this data, I love the fact that they went out and they tried to to say, well, what uh, you know, what are other inducements of stress? And they did the Trier social stress test, which didn't work in Nairobi because <laughs> because they love public speaking in Kenya. And you which go, which was the piece that blew me away. I know because I'm going it, that in in the U.S. All those you know different aspects that we see where they they put out the list of a hundred things that are people are most afraid of and public speaking is in front of death many times in those so i'm going <laughs> right, right well if that's not a universal then what is universal and again it comes back to this context piece it comes yeah. back to this aspect but going back yeah. to you know this the psychology of of poverty and i loved channing when he said there's a psychology poverty trap right now there's a psychological yeah. poverty trap yeah um and it's that you know people are poor um not because of some fundamental thing it, it, that they're lazy or whatever else it is but they're poor or they're they're, they're poor because they start off being poor and they're, they're it's, it's an interesting psychological thing but you know i think there's something there yeah right? and that and that the stress that they experience because of being poor limits their decision making abilities that, yeah. that right, right we've we've talked about how uh, we've talked to neuroscientists about how stress pulls your prefrontal cortex offline yeah. right so when it comes to making good decisions we're going to be much more limited when we're really stressed and poverty is a big damn stressor and this is a, a message that i feel is really underserved in in the world like we i don't think that that message has gotten into the ethos of 
of the way we think and talk about poverty. Well, I know a lot of people who believe that poverty, particularly in the U.S., is caused because people are lazy or they just don't want to put the effort in, which I guess is laziness. But this idea that there is something fundamental about the person that is causing them to be lazy. It's the just world hypothesis, right, that comes into this, this component. And in reality, I mean, there's research that shows that, hey, poverty can actually uh, be associated with a decline of IQ by 13 points. That was done by- Oh, um, yeah. Uh, uh, Sandal Molinath and Eldar Shafir and, and uh, at, at all, right? All yeah, together. right. Yeah, which is fantastic. And, and the IQ decrease of 13 points is almost one standard deviation on, on a typical IQ test, wow. which- that's huge. That means wow. that that you are taking people who, uh, if they were at a, a a normal standard IQ, and you place them in poverty, they would all of a sudden become you know at a decreased uh, intellectual capacity for that. Right, which, which makes sense. And and they talk about it. Um, you know, Sendel uh, talks about it, and he's saying that it appears that poverty itself reduces cognitive capacity. And we suggest that this is because poverty-related concerns consume mental resources, leaving less for other tasks. It's this idea of scarcity. And because they have scarcity, they have to figure out, how am I going to get my next meal? What am I going to do? And that takes up processing power within your brain, and it leaves less time uh, and less area capacity for your brain to process on some other factors. And so you're, you're you're losing that ability to think coherently and rationally. And it is very, very difficult for someone who is not in that situation to actually put themselves. It's very difficult for me to imagine what it's like to not be able to make those decisions, to be stressed so much that I'm not even, A, I'm not even aware of the stress and that it's impacting my decision-making to a degree that I would be acting as if I had 13 points lower IQ, which for me would be death, basically. <laughs> I wouldn't even be alive at that point. But, but my God, you know, it's it's hard for us to really put ourselves in that situation. But I think I would really love it if this enters, if this could enter the, the, the common conversation about how we go about dealing with poverty. Well, and, and I think one of the interesting pieces of this is that, all right, if there was one, just one study that showed this, you kind of have to look at that and go, eh, I don't know. But there have been multitude of studies right. that show this right. relationship between stress, poverty, and IQ, and, and it's causal. And, and there was some interesting research on, on like longitudinal. So if you, it, it's, not, it, it's not the fact that you're poor creates this. If you are rich and you lost and you lost everything, it applies to you then too. So. So those are really interesting pieces. And to your point, it's hard to imagine it, but yet we know that this happens and it could happen to any one of us, which I think back to your point, how do we then change our viewpoint on poverty and what it does? And how do we create some of those elements that become systematic with poverty that kind of do that reinforcing loop? And how do we break that loop? You teed up the idea of rational versus irrational or a little bit earlier. And I wanted to spend just just a short minute on that because Channing teed up this idea of questioning what is rational and what is irrational. 
Mm. right? From an evolutionary perspective, we're gaining a better understanding of how a lot of our, what we call biases and the heuristics, right? The, the, these rules of thumb that we use for decision-making are really well, um, you know, they come from really good places in our evolutionary history, but don't necessarily fit into the world that we live in today. Right. We, we're we talking with Tim Ash, actually. Uh, I think it'll be the next episode that gets published. And, and he talks about that. But I think it's really a good point to think about is we label things as irrational. And I think that is probably a wrong way of labeling them. Kuhn Smets actually just tweeted out uh, this idea that we need a better definition for irrational and rational for the yeah. social sciences. And yeah. I could not agree more because I think that it does a disservice when we say it's irrational and so then we just have to get rid of it. No, there's there has been yeah. some point where much of this actually has a reason for it. And it just either is, again, contextually based where it doesn't fit with the context that's going in, or we just don't understand why that is. And it's not necessarily irrational. It just is not apparent. And so, you know, and, and again, Channing talked about this and this idea that, you know, people might take less money in the future than more money now, but which seems irrational, right. but they understand their own. If, if I get that money now, I will spend it. And yeah. so it's almost, it, it's this Ulysses kind of contract for them. Absolutely. Look, I, I need, I know I will need that money around the holidays. So I will forego getting the money now and get that money later. Uh, and, and so when you understand what's behind that thinking, that makes rational sense. But if you just looked at it at, on face value, makes no sense at all. And so thus it gets labeled irrational. Yeah. So again, context matters. All right. That's, I think that's what we just, we, we should just have every episode be around context and context. That matters. would be great. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well with that people hang on because Tim is going to come back with a bonus track. Hey, Groovers. Welcome to the bonus track and Groove Idea for the Week. This is Tim with a quick recap of what we discussed with Channing. First off, we discussed solving poverty where it is most prevalent, which is why Johannes Haushofer went to Africa to see what could be done to work with the most impoverished nations on Earth. And we thought that was really important. We also examined the definition of what is rational and what isn't. And we discovered that though all humans might share certain biases around the globe, that way that we experience them and the way that we test for them, well, that's going to be different. That's going to be contextualized. We also talked about the different ways academics look at problems compared to the way practitioners look at problems. And we're grateful that they have, that we have both types of people in this world. But most importantly, we talked about how context is and matters. Channing reminded us that contextualizing something can be very difficult. In fact, it can be really, really hard work. And for problems like that, I'm glad that we have people like Channing to lead the way in solving for them. Okay, Groovers, for your groove idea for this week, we'd like you to consider what Channing said about your hydrocortisol levels, how they increase when you're stressed, and that how that leads to poor decisions. 
Can you think of a time when you were really stressed that you made a bad decision? What things were you considering and what might you consider doing the next time you're stressed and being asked to decide something? You might be able to wait. You might be able to calm down and feel less stressed. We recommend taking a few deep purposeful breaths to help calm down. Focusing on breathing deep in your lungs and exhale. If you just do this three, say three to seven times, you might actually improve your decision-making and help you get back into your groove. Well, give it some thought and let us know what tips you've got. We'd be happy to share them. So thanks for hanging out with us for this episode of Behavioral Grooves. And we hope that this week you stay healthy and you do your best to stay in or find your groove. Mm-hmm.